Friends, if you have your Bible, please turn with me in them to Luke chapter 11. Luke 11, this morning we're reading verses 5 to 13. Uh, and we're actually in a summer series called How to Pray, where we've been saying this uh, simple thesis. All of us are students in the school of prayer, and none of us will graduate beyond it. None of us will move on from it. That a life of Christian discipleship is a life of growing more and more in prayer. Now, last week we looked at Luke 11 and we learned how to pray as Jesus taught in the Lord's Prayer. Today we're in Luke 11. We're looking at how to pray as Jesus illustrated. And then uh, just to give you all a sneak peek as to what's upcoming, um, over the next two weeks, Pastor Isaac will then preach, uh, finishing off this series, How to Pray by uh, pointing us to James chapter five, uh, where we'll talk more about praying together, corporate prayer. And then we have our annual retreat, The Well, September eight to 10. And then when we come back, um, the third Sunday of September, we'll begin our new fall series. And so that's kind of where we're headed over the next four weeks. Uh, but today we're looking at Luke 11. If you are able, I invite you to stand with me. Standing as an act of worship for the reading and the receiving of God's word. It shows the posture of our hearts the reverence which we have when we receive what the Lord has to say. Luke 11, beginning with verse five. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, Though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated and join me once more. Father, we ask for listening ears this morning, that by your Holy Spirit's ministry and presence among us, we would be attentive to your word, but that attentiveness would lead to more than uh, information transfer, um, but it would lead to conviction and deep transformation, growth and conviction that we might be a prayerful people seeking your face. So be glorified, Christ be honored, and may your word be preached. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What kind of learning styles do you guys have? How do you prefer to learn? You know, when I was in seminary, I had a professor who was a wonderful and brilliant man, a fantastic author who wrote many books. Some of you may know some of these books if I told you. Uh, he was a very skillful and competent person in his field. But when it came to his teaching, man, I found it to be a real struggle. Uh, I think he taught in a way that kind of divided the class. Half the people really loved these uh, three-hour-long lectures, um, but I really dreaded them. And the reason was the way he taught. 
Um, if you're like me, uh, you prefer straightforward lectures. You want clear outlines. You want concrete definitions for terms. Uh, but this professor, on the other hand, seemed to meander through his teaching. He shared thoughts and reflections through personal anecdotes. He often was verbalizing his journal entries to the class. And for note takers like me, I mean, it was an absolute nightmare. You didn't know what to write. And he'd say a term, and he'd say, and the definition of this term is, but then he'd give an illustration, and you're like, is that going to be on the exam? Like, you don't know how to write that down. Well, I recall this professor because in Luke 11, we actually see Jesus as a master teacher who's actually speaking to people with both kinds of learning um, preferences. In this chapter, we see Jesus teaching about prayer uh, in two ways. One, he gives a clear, helpful outline for those who like that. And then he also gives two illustrations for those who learn in that way. Remember, the context of Luke is the disciples come to Jesus and they ask in verse one, Lord, teach us to pray. And then Jesus goes on as a skillful professor to answer in two ways. The first way in verses two to four is he provides a clear outline, a clear instruction in the Lord's prayer. He says, when you pray, say this. And he gives you the guideline, the model for prayer. And for those who take notes, this is great. They, they begin to write down, oh, okay, pray, Father, you're in heaven. But then for the second kind of learner, he gives another answer in verses five to 13. And here Jesus says, do you want to learn how to pray? And then he goes on to give two illustrations. He tells two stories, one about a friend and one about a father. And so we're going to focus on this second portion of Jesus's teaching where he gives two illustrations for us to learn from him. And the focus of our meditation this morning is this. It's very simple. God desires that you pray persistently and wait patiently. How should you pray? Well, God desires that in your prayer life, you pray persistently, but then you also wait patiently. So let's get into our story. The first illustration begins in verses five to six, where Jesus says, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And when Jesus starts a teaching and he says, which of you, he's already assuming the answer. The answer is none of us. Jesus is going to give a negative example so that we all can say, oh yeah, of course, none of us would do that. Now, here's the illustration. A man is in bed with his family. It's late in the night and a friend shows up knocking on the door. There is no texting, so we can't text from outside. Hey, are you up? There's no ring cameras to show the notification someone's approaching. And so he knocks on the door late one night because he's in a bind. And this is his bind. A friend of his was traveling and he stopped by his house unannounced. Now he stopped by so late because remember, this is the Middle East. You don't travel during the day. You'd probably travel as soon as the sun started to go down. So he arrives at his friend's house pretty late. And as uh, was prized in the ancient culture, hospitality was expected. You were expected to um, bring out, you know, some refreshments, some food, an abundance of it. But the problem, of course, is this man has nothing to offer. He has no bread. And it prompts him, therefore, to be on a search. He must find bread in order to be a proper host, to show proper hospitality. And so he's out at midnight. Now, some of you are up at midnight and you're fine, but you have to understand midnight at the time of the Bible was smack dab in the middle of the night. People went to bed right after the sun went down, right? I mean, there's no internet. 
There's no cell phones. There's no TV, no Netflix, no lights, no electricity. There's no reason to be up at midnight. And so one commentator writes, the request was reasonable. The hour was unreasonable. So the man is knocking on his friend's door and he's asking for his help. And he asked specifically for three loaves of bread. Now, three loaves of bread is most likely because uh, he wanted to provide an abundance for his friend. You know, Middle Eastern culture and food, you would often take bread and you would, you know, smear it in whatever you were eating. It was kind of used even as a utensil. So he's asking for three loaves of bread and he knows he made bread because he smelled him baking it earlier that day. You're in a small village, someone's baking bread, you know who got bread in the house. In my neighborhood, I know exactly who and what family and where they live is making carby when they grill outside. Cause I go out to the mailbox and I smell it in the air and I linger just a little bit longer <laughs> to take it in. You know exactly who has the bread. So he goes to this friend's house, but the problem is the guy doesn't seem to wanna give the bread. He doesn't wanna be troubled. Now, it's not because he's a bad person. It's not like he's stingy and doesn't want to share food. It's not like he doesn't care about this man's honor and shame and, you know, wants him to be a bad host. That's not the reason. The reason is he's a family man. He has kids in the bed with him. Verse 7 continues, and he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot give up and give you anything. He's saying, if I get out of bed, I'll awaken everyone because Homes at this time were generally just one big room. Just think of like a a studio apartment. And it's not like the parents had their own, you know, queen or king size mattress and the parents or the children had um, either each twin beds or they had a bunk bed. It was nothing like that. They shared one bed, one mat. It's kind of like that scene in uh, the original Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, right? Charlie's grandparents, all four of them kind of stuck and lined up in a bed. That was the situation. And so, of course, to get up would be to awaken everyone, would be uh, inconvenient for everybody. But Jesus gives this illustration. And his point is this, that no matter how incredibly inconvenient the request is, the man will get up, he will fulfill his friend's request. But why? Why will the man do what he's asked? And Jesus makes it clear, it's not because they're friends. Now, sure, they're introduced as friends, but the relationship isn't why he gives them the bread. Jesus says in verse eight, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. The question is, what does impudus mean? Well, the NIV translates that word like this, shameless audacity. And the NASB translates it as shamelessness. Or if you have a ESV Bible, there should be a footnote. And on the bottom, it'll say another translation, persistence. The friend will answer the request because of the man's persistence, his shameless audacity, his unashamed boldness. He won't give up. Now, what does that mean for prayer? What is Jesus's lesson? Jesus is saying, when you come to the father in prayer, come with shameless persistence like this friend. Come with unashamed boldness. Don't worry about bothering God. Just keep asking for your persistent prayers will prevail. Reminds me of a story of a little boy He didn't want to go to bed, but his father tucked him in anyway. And so they did their evening routine. The father read him his story. 
kissed him on the forehead, turned off the light, quietly shut the door, went downstairs to watch some television. A few moments later, the boy calls out for his dad. And so his dad goes up, oh, son, what is it? He says, dad, I'm really thirsty. So being a good father, he gives him some water, tucks him into bed, kisses him on the forehead, turns off the light, quietly shuts the door, goes back downstairs. A few moments later, dad, dad, he's calling out again. This time the father's a little bit annoyed. So he goes upstairs and he says, what do you need, son? And he says, well, now I need to go to the bathroom. So he takes him to the bathroom, brings him back to bed. He tucks him in, kisses him on the forehead, turns off the light, quietly shuts the door, goes back downstairs. And a third time the boy calls out, dad, dad. And this time the, the father's full of impatience and he yells from the couch downstairs, son, if you call out my name one more time, I'm going to come up and spank you. Now go to sleep. Dead silence. And then the boy calls out, Dad, when you come upstairs to spank me, can you bring me a glass of water? What was the boy doing? He was calling out to his dad with impudence, shameless persistence, unashamed boldness. Friends, do you pray like this? Does this describe your prayer life? Or do you approach God hesitantly? Are you scared of bothering him? Of annoying him by asking for something too much, too often? And Jesus is speaking to you today and he's saying, don't stop praying for those things. How should you pray? Pray like this man with impudence. And persistence. He goes on to say in verse 9, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Growth in your prayer life requires that you understand Jesus doesn't criticize those who come to the Father and ask too much or too often. Jesus doesn't criticize that. He commends it. In fact, Jesus does more than commend praying persistently. He commands it. You see, God isn't like the man in the illustration. He isn't like you and me. God can't be bothered. You can't annoy God. You can't overwhelm God. You can't overwhelm him by asking too much of him. You can't overwhelm him by asking too many times from him. You can never run God's patience out so that he'll finally say, you know what, we're done. You're not getting this at all. That is not who our God is. Which makes me wonder, what are those things that you need to or you have been praying for again and again and again? What are those prayers you've given up on because you've asked a few times and God didn't immediately answer it? And so you just said, okay, you know what? I'm just going to stop praying about that. What are those things that you've prayed for in the past and you got really discouraged and defeated over? And therefore, you concluded, you know, what's pointless to pray? Like, what's the point of bringing this to God anyway? You see, friends, if you are hearing his voice this morning, he's challenging you to be shameless, to be bold, to leave timidity at the door and come to God. You know what the problem with some of us is? There's a word in, in the Korean culture called dunchi. Right? I, I don't know how to define it. Uh, social awareness. Some say it's a skill in being able to read the room. Some of us are too much nunchi when it comes to God. And so we don't come to him. We don't want to burden him. 
this morning, the Holy Spirit is convicting you and saying, whatever that prayer request that you once gave up, pick it back up in prayer. Take it to the throne room again and plead before God at midnight. Because for God, there is no unreasonable hour. He neither sleeps nor slumbers. He does not consider your boldness to be a bother. And let's get specific. What are those things that you have prayed for in the past persistently, desperately? Maybe for some of you, it's to find a future husband or a future wife. Or you were so optimistic years ago when you, through various failed setups, all the dating apps that didn't match you properly, you've just quit. And so now all your friends, they're dating, they're engaged. Some of them are getting married. So you just feel stuck and you think it's a pointless. And so you've stopped bringing that to God. And Luke 11 is encouraging you this morning, pray persistently, don't give up. And there's others of you who are stuck in financial trouble. The debt facing you is the size of a mountain, no matter what progress you make out of it. It seems like something is always going wrong and so realistically, you think well, there's no way that this will be tackled. So you stop praying about that and bringing it before God. And Luke 11 is encouraging you this morning. Keep praying. Don't give up. Pray persistently. Some of you were trying to start a family and you've given up hope. Doctor's appointments and blood work and scan and you're struggling. Whether that's through infertility or miscarriage. And in your head, you conclude that it's easier to deal with the heartache if you have no expectation. So I'm not going to pray about it. And Luke 11 is encouraging you this morning, pray persistently. Some of you have children who are wayward in the faith. Maybe they're in church like the religious older brother. Maybe they're out of church like the prodigal younger brother, but both regardless in their hearts are far from the Lord and you can't control their faith. Everything you try to do to help only seems to make things worse. And so you've stopped bringing that before God. Luke 11 encourages you pray persistently. Some of you have family members or friends who you long to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. You've talked to them, but boy, oh boy, are they stubborn. They're prideful. Life is too convenient and easy and good for them. You can't imagine how they might come to know the Lord. It would take a miracle. And so you stop praying that before the Lord. And Luke 11 is encouraging you, pray persistently. Some of you have experienced trauma and wounds that have scarred you and you want to be healed, but there doesn't seem to be any progress in the area. Maybe you're struggling with trusting somebody or certain relationship. You want to be comfortable. You want to move on, but you just can't. You've asked God for a heart to forgive others, but their offense, their betrayal, their insensitivity makes it so impossible because you can't get over the pain and all these things. You've prayed about it for a while, but then you stopped and you gave up. And Luke 11 is encouraging you, pray persistently. Friends, whatever it is the Holy Spirit this morning is telling you to pick up and go to the Father in persistent prayer and unashamed of boldness, would you listen to him? Ask and seek and knock. Why? So that you might receive and find and have it open to you. That's the first and longer lesson. Pray persistently. But this lesson can't stand on its own because if you just take this lesson, you'll begin to pray and just expect God to be a genie in a bottle, listening 
and answering every prayer request. Just like little children learn, if you're in the line at Target and they see a little toy or they want a piece of candy and they cry long enough and spaz out and the parent caves in, then they learn their condition to do it again and again and again. That's not the lesson Jesus is saying. He's not saying pray persistently. He means sit there and hold your breath and stomp your feet and keep coming to God and eventually he'll get, he'll do whatever you want. That's not the point. Because that first lesson, pray consistently and pray persistently, needs then to be balanced out by the lesson of the second illustration. And that's this, wait patiently. You also need to learn how to wait patiently because God is your good and wise father. He will provide and protect for his children. And knowing he is good and wise means that sometimes he'll say yes to your prayer requests. And sometimes he'll say no. And sometimes he'll say, slow. And sometimes he'll say, grow. But in either case, whatever his answer is, it reflects his goodness and his wisdom. So the second illustration goes like this, verses 11 and 12. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? See, once again, Jesus says, what father among you? And the answer is no father, no parent would do this awful, horrible thing of giving their child something dangerous and harmful. And so Jesus's point is verse 13. If then you who are evil, if you then who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If evil fathers, meaning those in their sin, those sinful people can provide good gifts for their children, how much more does our good heavenly father provide what? And in your mind, when you're lazy and you're thinking, you go, oh, how much more will the heavenly father provide good gifts? But that's not what Jesus says. What does he say? How much more will the father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now the Holy Spirit comes out of left field. It's a little odd and off. You would think he would say good good gifts, but he says the Holy Spirit, why? Because the point is God is so good, so loving, so kind, so wise, so generous that he won't give you what you want. He'll give you what you need. More than the desires of your heart, what you need most in this life is the Holy Spirit, God's personal presence with you. You need the spiritual blessings he brings into your life. The spirit of God is the best and better gift. And so when we say God gives you the spirit, It means God gives you what is ultimately good. Now the question is, who gets to define what good is? Who determines what good is? Does God tell me that this is a good thing or do I get to say that's a good thing? All right, let's say there was a child, right? A a, a little girl, five-year-old girl who asked her, uh, who, who, who you asked, describe for me a good father. And somewhere in that description, as she's saying, you know, plays with me and, you know, loves me and, and provides for me, she says, you know, whenever I ask him what, for, for, for anything, he gives it to me. Like, that's her definition of a good father. And yet, if this five-year-old girl asked her father for a loaded gun, well, what kind of good father would grant that request? Right? Even if she prayed persistently for it and she asked her father for unashamed boldness, she says, you know, I've been asking him for this loaded gun since I was two years old and now I'm five. It's been three years. Why isn't he giving it to me? Well, we would all agree. We would all understand only a bad father would say yes to this. Only a foolish, unwise man would say yes to this. And a good, wise father would deny it, would deny the request. So then you go back to that little girl 
who was just denied what her heart wanted, and you were to ask her, is your father good? What would her answer be? Absolutely not. Do you know how much I've asked for this? Do you know how he's denied this? But her assessment would be wrong. Why? Because a good father never gives what's evil and harmful. A good father never withholds a good thing without a good reason. You see, friends, when you ask for something, even when you ask persistently and boldly, if God says no, then you know what that means? It means what you asked for must have not been the good thing that you thought it was. I really wonder what strides, what growth, what maturity would happen in our Christian lives if we actually learned and believed this truth that God doesn't withhold good things from you. And that as a good and wise father, he does not give you what you want, but he gives you what you need, that which is far better, the spirit himself. You see, friends, it's when you know this to be true that then you pray persistently, all the while you are waiting patiently. While you're waiting for the answer, you're waiting patiently. You wait on the perfect timing for God's perfect answer because he's the perfect father. You know, we need to have the humility to understand this. Sometimes we make prayer requests and we think we're asking for fish and we think we're asking for eggs when in reality we're asking for serpents and scorpions. And God is so good that he'll never give you exactly what you're asking for. And in his goodness and wisdom, he'll say no. There are other times that you're asking for a fish and an egg and God is saying yes, but not right now. If you wait a little longer, I'll give you exactly what you need when you need it. When you understand the goodness and the wisdom of God, your father, you pray persistently, but you wait patiently. And waiting is not a passive thing. Waiting is not doing nothing. Waiting is not letting the time go by. Waiting is active. Waiting is trusting the father. Waiting is submitting to his timing. Waiting is keeping faith while seeking his face. I think one of the best examples of this comes from the life of George Mueller. George Mueller was a 19th century British evangelist. He was a very generous man. He started many orphanages. In his lifetime, he cared for over 10,000 orphans. Um, but he was also known to be a man of prayer. And we know this because he kept throughout his life an ongoing prayer journal where on the one hand, he would, on the one side, he would write all the petitions, everything he's praying for. And then on the other side, he would write all the ways in which God has answered his prayers. So he was known to be a man of great prayer and faith. And he wrote this in one of his journal entries that really illustrates that he prayed persistently, but waited patiently. Here's what he writes. In November, 1844, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. He's praying for uh, five children of his friends. And he says, I prayed every day without a single intermission, whether sick or in health, on the land or on the sea, and whatever the pressure of my engagements might be. 18 months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. I thanked God and prayed on for the others. Five years elapsed, and then the second was converted. I thanked God for the second and prayed on for the other three. Day by day, I continued to pray for them, and six years passed before the third was converted. 
I thank God for the three and went on praying for the other two. These two remain unconverted. Then he begins talking about himself. The man to whom God in the riches of his grace has given tens of thousands of answers to prayer in the self-same hour or day in which they were offered has been praying day by day for nearly 36 years for the conversion of these individuals. And yet they remain unconverted. But I hope in God. I pray on and look yet for the answer. They are not converted yet, but they will be. Well, 53 years after he started praying for these men, Mueller died in 1897. He prayed daily for their salvation, and yet at the time of his death, only three of the five were saved. But Mueller would soon celebrate from heaven because a few years after his death, the remaining two came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I share this story because it is an incredible example of a man who learned to pray as Jesus illustrated. He prayed persistently for decade after decade after decade, and he waited patiently. See, friends, we should seek to become this kind of person, this kind of Christian. And it may seem impossible because when you tell stories like this, these are saints of God and they're written in the history books and I could never be like them. But you have to realize it's not about you possessing strong faith. It's about you putting faith in a strong God. And so this kind of life is possible for you. The question is, do you have confidence that God is good and wise father? In fact, to push it even further, I'm not asking you if you think God is somebody's good and wise father. Do you have confidence that God is your good and wise father? The whole premise of this illustration in verses 11 and 12, the whole premise is that a father is good enough that he'll do anything to protect his children. That's the premise, right? That's the assumption Jesus is working with, that a good father will not only provide, but he'll also protect. And that's why he'll never give a serpent. That's why he'll never give a scorpion. But here's the thing, we know these are dangerous animals that if you are bit, or stung by any one of them, you'll die. I mean, they are lethal and they are deadly. And so, of course, any earthly father would protect his children. But here's an assumption that we make, but we can't, which is this. Why should this be true of God? What obligation does God have to protect you from serpents and scorpions? What does God owe you? And what have you done for God that you deserve that he would provide your every need and that he would protect you from the dangers in life. Okay, on what basis does God owe that to you? And the answer, of course, is there is no answer. I can come up with nothing. But when we have no answer to come up with, God supplies us an answer. God gives us the answer. And the answer comes in the gospel of the Lord Jesus because the gospel says that when you were an enemy of God in your sin and your rebellion against him, when you didn't live for him, but you lived only for yourself, he sent his one and only son, Jesus, into the world to die on a cross for you, to forgive you of your sins that you might be adopted into his family and welcomed as his child. And you have to understand, until Jesus changes your relationship to God the Father, you can have no certainty that praying, praying persistently or waiting patiently will make any difference. In your sin, left to yourself, praying persistently, waiting patiently gets you nothing. Not until you've trusted in Christ 
who takes you from being God's enemy to being his child. And now you have a reason to trust and believe that God will always give the fish and the egg, never the serpent and the scorpion. Because here's the reality, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, apart from receiving Christ as your savior, we all deserve a scorpion and a serpent. In our sin against God, we all rightfully deserve death, spiritual death. But the gospel and its beauty and glory is the good news that Christ came into the world to take the bite of the serpent and he took the sting of the scorpion for you. The good news of the gospel is that Christ took your sins upon himself and in going to the cross, he died in your place where he faced the curse and death that you deserved. And because he took the lethal bite, and he absorbed the deadly sting, you never have to worry about receiving something harmful from the hand of God. Now you have the confidence and the assurance that he is your heavenly father who both provides and protects. Not only will he never give you a scorpion or a serpent, but he'll actually provide you something better than a fish or an egg. He'll give you the Holy Spirit and every spiritual provision that you need. If I ask the question, on what basis? Why would God owe it to you to be your kind, merciful, gracious, good, wise father? The answer is he doesn't. But in the gospel of the Lord Jesus, I have the confidence that I am his own, and therefore I have the assurance to pray persistently, and while praying, I wait patiently. Friends, don't rest in the outcomes of your prayers, but rest in the one you're praying to. If you're only looking for the outcomes, then you will give up in prayer. But when you wait patiently and your hope is in God, you can pray persistently. And so take those prayers that you've given up on. Take those prayers that you've been discouraged and defeated to lift up. Take those prayers that you think are impossible for God to answer. Take them to the Father again and again, and then wait patiently on him. Because however he chooses to answer that prayer, they are always going to be the answers of a good and wise Father. Bow your heads with me.